Substance use and addiction are and have been big problems in America, but we now have evidence-based tools uh, that work to prevent and treat substance use disorders. In the last 20 years, the death toll from opioid abuse in the United States has quadrupled, claiming more than 30,000 lives every year, or roughly the same number that are killed in car accidents. And the number of people at risk is astonishing, two and a half million. That's about the entire population of Chicago, or four times the population of Boston. It's no hyperbole to call the situation a crisis, yet it's a hushed crisis. The shame of addiction drives both addicts and their friends and families to hide the enormous struggle they're forced to endure every day. Many of you listening in today may be intimately familiar with that struggle, and if you aren't, it's likely that you're a lot closer to someone who is than you know. To make things worse, it's an epidemic with no single specific cause, nor easy set of solutions, making it that much harder to confront. But our guest today is doggedly determined to find a way. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and joining us today is Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States. He's on campus thanks to the Center for Public Leadership, the Wiener Center, and the HKS Healthcare Policy Program to deliver this year's Seymour E. and Ruth B. Harris Lecture at the JFK Junior Forum. Dr. Murthy, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be with you. So I think everybody knows what the Surgeon General is, and at bare minimum because of the warning labels on cigarette boxes and, and alcohol. Um, but I'm curious, what do you see as the most important aspect of your role? It's funny that you mentioned that everybody knows uh, about the Surgeon General. I find that most people have heard about the role because they've seen my warning labels on cigarette boxes uh, or on alcohol bottles, but very few people actually know uh, what I do. And I often get mistaken for being someone else uh, as well. It happens at least once a week in the airport that people mistake me for being an airline pilot <laughs> because of the uniform <laughs> that I wear. Yep. But the job of the Surgeon General is really twofold. It's number one, to oversee the activities of the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. The Commission Corps is one of the seven uniformed services in the U.S. government, and the only one dedicated uh, to looking out for the public health of the nation. And we have 6,700 dedicated officers of all medical disciplines who uh, work hard at that every day. But the second job of the Surgeon General is to communicate with the public about important issues related to health so people can make good decisions for themselves and their families. When I came into this role, uh, I did so because I saw that they were pressing public health issues that we had to address as a country, but I wanted to modernize how we communicated as an office, and I also wanted to go beyond communicating, recognizing that sometimes information isn't enough to create change, and I wanted to work with communities to translate that information into action, and that's what we've worked hard to do around physical activity, around the opioid crisis, and around the larger issue of substance use and addiction. Mm-hmm. I think uh, one of the major issues that you have been uh, hammering away at has been the opioid crisis. I believe you called it the uh, largest public health crisis of our generation. Um, what is it about now that it's become such a big issue? Substance use and addiction have been a problem for a long time in America. And frankly, they've been a problem for centuries around the world. But what's different now is that we actually have the tools to prevent and to treat substance use disorders. And it's incredibly important that we make sure that people have access to those tools. Because right now we have 20.8 million people in America with a substance use disorder. And it may surprise some people to realize that that's about the same number of people who have diabetes. It's one and a half times the number of people who have all cancers combined. 
yet only one in 10 people with a substance use disorder actually gets treatment. Uh, and that's unacceptable. That's a gap uh, that we have to close. Uh, we've seen substance use disorders manifest in different ways uh, over time. You know, 20, 30 years ago, we had more of a focus on heroin. Uh, then cocaine became more of a focus. At some point, methamphetamines were more in the, the public discussion. Uh, now we're talking uh, about opioids in particular. And all in the while, we've known that alcohol has been uh, a problem, uh, one that actually leads in terms of the number of deaths caused and the number of dollars uh, you know, spent. So substance use and addiction are and have been big problems in America. But we now have evidence-based tools uh, that work to prevent and treat substance use disorders. On the treatment side, for example, not only does treatment work, but we know that it saves money. For every $1 we spend uh, in treatment, we save $4 in healthcare costs, $7 in criminal justice system costs. Prevention is even more beneficial because we have prevention programs which, when implemented properly, return $64 for every $1 invested. What this tells me is that we can't afford not to invest in prevention and treatment because right now, as a country, we spend $442 billion a year, that's billion with a B, uh, on substance use uh, disorders in the form of healthcare costs, criminal justice system costs, and work, lost work productivity. When you talk about prevention, what is it that we've invested in that has uh, proved so effective? Well, there are different types of prevention. There's prevention that's focused on a specific substance. And we would, when you think about opioids, for example, focusing on prescriber practices, on how doctors and nurse practitioners and dentists write prescriptions for uh, managing pain, that's a way of focusing on prevention that's specific to opioids. Mm -hmm. But we know that more broadly, that there are prevention programs uh, which are multifaceted in their impact, uh, which help uh, people develop healthy habits for coping with stress and managing pain, uh, and which can reduce the likelihood of them developing uh, problems with alcohol, with tobacco, uh, with opioids, both legal and illicit. Uh, one of those examples is uh, a program called the Good Behavior Game, uh, which is a prevention-based program that's uh, based in schools uh, and is one that has been shown to return $64 for every $1 invested. There are other school-based programs and community-based programs uh, that are directed at not just education, but equipping uh, young people with the life skills that they need to manage stress and to deal with it in a healthy way. Now, one of the major causes that's often cited for this crisis is the um, increase in the amount of opioids prescribed by doctors legally and uh, the kind of uh, downstream effects of that over the last decade or two. Do doctors bear some responsibility for where we are today? Well, all of us, including doctors, uh, have played a part uh, in leading to the current crisis. Uh, we know that uh, the path to getting here was a path that was paved with good intentions. 20 to 30 years ago, clinicians were urged to treat pain more aggressively, recognizing that we were, in fact, under-treating pain. Uh, but they were urged to do so without being given the tools and the training uh, that they needed to treat pain safely and effectively. At the same time, we also had aggressive marketing of opioid pain medications by pharmaceutical companies. We had an underinvestment uh, in treatment, and we had unfortunate but ongoing stigma around addiction that made it hard for people to come forward and to ask for help. All these combined uh, to lead to where we are today. But that also means that all of us have to be a part of the solution. Earlier this year, I sent a letter to 2.3 million healthcare practitioners. This was the f urging them uh, to action around the opioid epidemic. This is the first time in the 
145-year history of our office that such a letter and call to action had been issued to the medical profession. But the reason I did it was because I believed that, one, the scale of the crisis warranted it, but two, that clinicians had the unique ability uh, to address this crisis, not just because they prescribe uh, painkillers, but also because their platform is one which gives them the ability to inform and educate the community at a time where we desperately need that. Mm -hmm. We now know that even for those who are experiencing chronic pain, treating them with opioids still can get them uh, addicted. This isn't something that uh, was taken for granted just 20, 30 years ago. Um, How do doctors treat those with chronic pain if not relying on opioids? It's a great question. And one of the things that you realize when you delve into this is um, that opioids are not the only method of treating pain. We do, in fact, have other medications for pain, but we also have non-medication-based strategies uh, that can have been proven uh, to assist with uh, reducing pain, including physical therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. If you look at the, the VA, for example, they're using a number of these tools, including uh, massage and meditation as tools uh, to reduce and manage pain. Uh, so there are other methods, uh, and the challenge is ensuring that we have provided uh, enough training uh, to our clinicians to be able to choose wisely and to have discussions with patients to figure out what the most appropriate mechanisms for addressing pain are for them. But this also means that we have to invest more in developing more methods of treating pain uh, that are safe. Uh, And that's why uh, the Obama administration has, in fact, directed millions of dollars in funding uh, to support research projects to develop safer alternatives uh, to opioid medications. But we have to continue down that path uh, because right now we know that opioids are very effective at treating pain, but they come with significant risk. This doesn't mean that opioids are wrong for everyone. And I want to be very clear on that because 20, 30 years ago, we let the pendulum swing to one extreme where we were over-prescribing opioid medications. We have to be careful to not let that pendulum swing to the other extreme where we are denying opioids to people who really do need them and, in fact, in whom the benefits do outweigh the risks. So we have to keep that in mind, uh, but also continue the search for better alternatives uh, while making sure that clinicians understand the alternatives that we have. Uh, given that pharmaceuticals are obviously, you know, um, they're, they're a saleable way to treat a problem, um, whereas massage, not uh, quite as uh, saleable uh, or not quite as scalable a uh, sale, um, do you think that that had uh, perhaps a, uh, had an adverse uh, impact on how we treated pain over the last 20 years? Well, I think if we look back, we in history, we see that there was very aggressive marketing of these opioid medications, uh, often without sufficient attention given to the risks. And so there were many clinicians, for example, who were were taught or led to believe that these medications were not in fact that harmful, in fact that they were quite beneficial to patients. Uh, We now know that opioid medications are in fact quite addictive. Uh, Again, that doesn't mean that they're, they're wrong. Uh, to you know, the medication for some patients, but uh, we have to keep those risks in mind. To address the current crisis that we have, there's a very important role and responsibility that the private sector has. Uh, pharmaceutical companies, I believe, should be, be uh, especially vigilant uh, about ensuring that the risks and benefits of the medications they make are made clear uh, to both patients and to clinicians. Uh, 
I also believe that it would be uh, good for pharmaceutical companies to to be part of the solution to helping to support treatment programs for people who have developed an addiction to opioids, uh, often with the very medications that they make. Um, but we also know that when we look at insurers, uh, that they have an important role as well. Uh, we know that payers make important decisions about what they pay for. Uh, and if they aren't, aren't adequately paying for alternatives to pain medication, that creates a barrier for people to use them. I was in Oklahoma recently, uh, and we're speaking to, to health system leaders there uh, who were telling me that they want to make wiser choices uh, around medications that they give people for pain. They want to choose non-opiate alternatives, but they're finding that they are much more expensive. Uh, and so payer practices uh, are uh, an important part uh, of this equation as are pharmaceutical practices. Um, but we got to make sure that payers are paying for the alternatives to pain medication, to opiate medications, and that they're also covering uh, treatment services adequately. Uh, because without the alternatives and without the treatment, it's going to be hard for us uh, to effectively address the opioid crisis. Now, on the treatment side, uh, you mentioned the stigma of addiction. This is something that has come up quite a bit when talking about opioids. Obviously, the the stigma, it, it exists, and it's a problem for those who should seek treatment. Um, but at the same time, uh, I don't think anybody worries about, uh, you know, increased crime when a cancer clinic opens up down in their neighborhood. Um, do you think that it's reasonable to expect that we will accept as a society addiction in the same way as all the other uh, public health uh, maladies that we know of? I think if we understand the science behind addiction, if we listen to the stories of people in our lives who have been touched by addiction, we start to realize that this is a disease that has a biological basis. It's a disease of the brain. It actually affects the circuitry in our brain uh, and particularly targets areas of our brain that uh, govern impulse control, decision-making, as well as our reward and stress system. And when we hear the stories of people we love and know who are impacted by addiction, we quickly recognize that they don't want to remain uh, in a state of pain and suffering. They want to get better, but they are having a hard time doing it alone. It's the same story that we actually hear from people with heart disease, with diabetes, who are often struggling with an illness and need help uh, to get better. Um, we, we have a double standard sometimes when it comes to addiction where we assume that people should pick themselves up uh, and get better on their own. Uh, and that they should, if they do need treatment, that it should be quick, a couple of weeks you know, in a, uh, in a center and then they should be back out and be cured. That's not how this works. People don't go in for two weeks intensive treatment for diabetes and then come out cured. Uh, this is a chronic condition that we have to manage. Uh, and while the medications are important, while the counseling is important, we have to remember that in the fight against addiction, our most powerful weapon is in fact compassion. Uh, it's what allows us to stop judging and to start helping. It's what allows us to step beyond our own bias and offer support. And help and support are what so many people desperately need right now who are suffering with addiction. Mm -hmm. We're about to enter a new presidential administration. Uh, obviously, President now President-elect Trump, soon to be President Trump, has vowed to get rid of Obamacare. The central tenet of Obamacare has been increasing coverage. How is the opioid epidemic going to be impacted if 
insurance coverage starts to get rolled back, especially among folks who are either in the lower income or medium to low income group? Well, coverage is an important part of ensuring people have access to treatment. There's no doubt about that. The fact that 20 million people were able to gain coverage over the last several years uh, after the ACA was passed uh, was an important part of ensuring that we could get people the treatment they needed for their substance use disorder. You know, in terms of the new administration, uh, one thing I'm encouraged by is the fact that substance use disorders, the problem that we have with addiction in America is not a partisan issue. People are feeling it all across America. This is affecting people of all income groups, you know, men and women, people in urban and rural areas, uh, folks who are rich and poor, uh, and of all races and backgrounds. And that has become apparent uh, to our elected leaders as well, which is why you know, I've had the privilege of working across the aisle with people of both parties over this past couple of years as Surgeon General uh, to address the issue of opioids. Uh, when it comes to substance use disorders more broadly, you know, I think we, we see a similar shared interest. And that's why my hope is that as we move forward and begin a new administration, as we start to actually have concrete discussions about what kind of changes we want to make to our healthcare system, uh, my hope is that we will continue to keep coverage uh, front and center as something that we need to not only protect, but actually expand. Because despite all the gains that we've made, uh, we still have millions of people in our country who don't have insurance coverage. That means millions of people who can't get treatment for a substance use disorder or access preventive services if they need them. Mm. Health is a fundamentally nonpartisan issue. Everybody wants to be healthy. Uh, and so it makes sense that your role as Surgeon General for the United States is a fairly nonpartisan role. Um, in the past, you've caught fire for uh, some things. You tweeted about um, gun violence and, and how that might be considered a public health crisis. I'm curious about how you draw the line in the, in those situations where do you try to avoid issues in order to uh, avoid issues that might be politically uh, uh, touchy uh, in order to strengthen your position on other issues which there's broad agreement on um, or you know do you do you take a stand for uh, for scientific principles I guess well the way I make my decisions about what issues to focus on are based on what is causing the greatest amount of pain and suffering and cost to our country. It's the reason that I focused on uh, the substance use crisis that we have in America. Uh, but I also have made it a priority to focus on building a culture of prevention in our country, recognizing that in the long term, what's going to ultimately help us save lives, reduce suffering, and save money uh, is going to be shifting to a prevention-based society. You know, We as a society focus the lion's share of our time and resources on treatment. For that reason, we have some of the best treatments uh, in the world. Uh, but we do relatively little on the prevention side, despite the fact that to most people, prevention makes sense, uh, rather than waiting for an illness to develop uh, and then uh, wait to treat it. So when I'm thinking about what to focus on, these are my guides. What's going to ultimately create the greatest benefit uh, to the health of our country? And science is ultimately my, uh, my guide as to what to say and what not to say, which is that I speak when there's evidence uh, to back up you know, what we say, and sometimes that's controversial and sometimes it's not. Uh, but as the Surgeon General, my job is to share the truth uh, with the public uh, as science dictates it. Uh, it's not to provide a slanted version of the truth. It's not to hide from the truth because it's difficult 
uh, to take a stand and to and to to speak the truth, uh, you know, when it's controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, you know, when you look at the past, uh, the the work that we've done, uh, you know, much of it has been uh, on issues where there's broad agreement, but you know, some of it has been controversial from time to time. But I think it's especially important during times of controversy that people uh, with knowledge about the facts and who have knowledge of science speak out because in the absence of knowledge and truth controversy uh, is only spurred on to greater heights Mm -hmm. you know and we when we have people arguing about opinion uh, without uh, the without the benefit of being informed by fact uh, then it's hard to actually get to a productive conclusion Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what guides me in the decisions that I make and the topics that we take on uh, and you know, I'm ha- happy to say certainly with when it comes to substance use disorders that this is a place where the amount of pain this is causing our country is great right now, uh, and there's great urgency to act, and that's why we've taken the issue on. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've 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 been appointed for a four-year term two years ago, which means you have a couple of years in uh, this new administration, this new uh, Washington world, uh, however it's going to end up being. Um, I'm curious about, so, you know, you mentioned, you know, trying to uh, pursue truth. Uh, Another subject that was brought up by one of the students here was uh, how implicit bias is something that's Mm. being um, taught and become part of training for, uh, you know, medical practitioners um, across the United States these days. Uh, President-elect Trump has, he doesn't believe very strongly in the concept of implicit bias. Um, When there are disagreements like that between the political end and kind of the medical community or the scientific end of things. Do you feel like you're going to have to approach things differently in your role working with the new administration? Well, you know, I will say that there have been times in the past when in our country's history where there have been disagreements uh, between science and uh, policymakers. Uh, You know, if we look back actually half a century, at our country's experience with tobacco. We know that there was a time when science told us that tobacco was indeed bad for our health and that it caused cancer, uh, but where that was not necessarily embraced uh, by some of our leaders in the country, and both at a community level and you know, at, at a political level. But it's, that's when it's especially important for people who understand science to speak up and this is not just the Surgeon General, but when I think about the entire community of physicians that we have in our country, people who have dedicated their lives to relieving suffering, people who have a deep understanding of science, when I think about our researchers uh, around the country who have dedicated their lives to discovery and the pursuit of the truth and better therapeutics, when I think about our nurses, our pharmacists, our others who have trained in science-based professions, who understand uh, what science tells us uh, you know, about health, all of them uh, are people and fields that also need to speak up during times uh, of confusion, when there's not clarity around what the science says, when people might be using uh, you know, that confusion uh, you know, for other purposes and for, for other gain. Uh, and so part of the reason that I issued that letter uh, to clinicians, to 2.3 million clinicians around the country, was because I recognize that for us to take on some of our most intractable public health challenges, We need more than one or two prominent voices speaking up, but we need a chorus of professionals all across this country, of doctors and nurses, of mothers and fathers, of teachers and principals who understand what the health needs are that our community is facing, 
who understands the truth about what science tells us about addressing those problems, and who are willing to speak that truth and to do so clearly, even in the face of controversy. Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy is a Surgeon General of the United States. Dr. Murthy, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Before we go, I just wanted to quickly add that we still want to hear from you. Uh, You can shoot us a line at policycast at hks.harvard.edu. HKS Policycast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. It's produced by Matt Cadwallader, along with Natalie Montaner, Sarah Abrams, and Becky Wickle, with help from Catherine Serafin on distribution. You can follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast or find links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.